You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. I want to tell you about a new sponsor here on the program. It's our first sponsor in a while, but in this time of economic uncertainty, this is a great, great business for all of you to partner with. It's Dashing Media Management. New ways of talking to customers are being created left and right, and you need an expert to help guide you through that process. That's where my friend Lex Kramer and Dashing Media Management come in. They're able to help you with social media, blog management, content marketing, graphics, and pretty much all of your marketing needs. They're a one-stop shop. They feature flat rate pricing, transparent reporting, and Lex is just a great person to work with, a good friend of mine, and I hope that you'll support her. So I hope you'll reach out to Lex today at their website, dashingmediamanagement.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to whoop, ah, welcome to We Are Libertarians, home of professional podcasters. Uh, thank you for joining <laughs> us on this episode. We are going to be talking about policing during the pandemic. There is all kinds of outrageous BS happening out there with the police. We knew that this was a recipe for abuse of petty tyrants and. In this episode, we will talk about that. Uh, joining me is my friend, Melissa, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to her and find out what her deal is in just a moment, but uh, she, I know a lot of people who hate the cops. Uh, I'm just kidding. She's going to get mad at me. All right, stay tuned right <laughs> after this. Warning, this show is for adults, produced by semi-adults, so the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh- Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Welcome to the program. Again, my name is Chris Spangle. It is great to have you here. Uh, We have a very um, Lions of Liberty Felony Friday type show for you. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about policing. This is not a beat up the cops episode when we talk about policing in America. We try not to beat up on the cops too much because, listen, uh, law enforcement is... Law enforcement is like any other profession, and uh, I was reminded of this. Well, let me introduce my my co-host for this episode, somebody that I hope will be joining us more often. I have not talked to her about that yet. Always best to have these conversations on air in front of people. Um, but M- Melissa, uh, you know, and I'm not going to give your last name unless you want me to. No, thank you. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Melissa and I met, uh, so I went up to a college to speak, and, uh, you know, this was like... Man, Melissa, what was it? Was it 2010? It was forever ago. (laughs) It was so long ago. So long ago, you were a college student. And uh, Cecil Bohannon, who is a great... uh, It was Cecil, right? That had me up Uh, to speak? Can't remember, honestly. I I think he's, he's the only one that ever invited me, so it has to be Cecil. And he's a libertarian economics professor 
uh, at a at a college that shall main, remain nameless. And uh, he invited me to speak about libertarianism. I was working for the Libertarian Party of, in, of Indiana at the time. And afterwards, this bubbly uh, young lady bounced up to me and said, Hi, I'm a libertarian too. Do you like Ron Paul? And then that's, that's the last time that I have seen Melissa in person. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then shortly after that, I went to an event where Bruce Fine was speaking with Glenn Greenwald and I think um, Radley Balco, maybe. And I got a signed constitution for Melissa that still lives on my shelf that I will one day send to her. He's author of Constitutional Peril, a great book. Um, but yeah, we live we live like an hour apart, but we've never managed to get together, and somehow we've become <laughs> best friends over time. It's really I love the internet age, Melissa. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So you you have maintained your libertarianness over all these years, even though you speak to libertarians regularly. <laughs> Despite libertarians, I am still a libertarian. I literally saw libertarians start calling for taxpayer funded primaries because of the way that the convention is being handled. I'm like libertarians, libertarians drive libertarians to statism. Um, so, so Melissa is a, a, a person that we talk about civil liberties all the time. And uh, so this pandemic there there was a great reason article that was just posted yesterday may 8th uh about how we've we've spoken to epidemiologists we've spoken to econ economists and we need to speak to li civil libertarians more and we need all three in the discussion and i think that's a very rational uh point of view and mm -hmm. Even those, and I don't know where you come down on things, but I have made it well known that I don't think that the disease is fake and I don't think that the pandemic is fake. I mean, 80,000 deaths in eight weeks is pretty significant, and we're going to probably hit that 100,000 to 200,000 target that Fauci outlined. Uh, all, all the metrics are really kind of in line. I think what shifted is our perception of the risk of this disease over the last eight weeks. Um, you know, and I've always advocated voluntarily sheltering in place to keep yourself safe, but not not government action, because government action tends to breed so many problems. Not only does it not work, uh, Mark Cuban just did a secret shopper survey in Dallas and found that 96 percent of people were not following social distancing guidelines, uh, which is I mean, Melissa, it's kind of a mega Karen move to commission that study to begin to begin with. Um, but the, the reality is that people are going to do whatever people are going to do. And the government really has no control or power over them. This is really a bottom up society. I'm not one of those libertarians that believes in a top down, powerful controlling cabal of people that are all trying to usher in neo-feudalism. And Bill Gates is a demonic little elfin man trying to control you all through vaccines. I'm not one of those libertarians. I believe that the government is usually very feckless and, and completely incompetent and usually very weak. And, they have certainly been shown to be so through this, as evidenced by 96% of people just doing whatever they want, because people's perceptions have changed, they've evaluated the risks, and they're ready to move on with their lives in a way that uh, consenting adults go, you know what, this is dangerous, I need to not see my mom for a week or two, I need to not go to the nursing home, I need to be practice uh, safe 
social contact through this, but we're past the curve, and this is how I'm going to personally operate in my life, and the government largely is irrelevant. But what happens through a pandemic as government gets involved is they start deeming what is essential and non-essential, and lo and behold, the non-essential businesses are the ones that are without lobbyists, and the ones that are essential businesses are the ones with lobbyists, and they pick and choose favorites, and it's an uneven application of uh, of e- economics and central planning fa- failure. You're putting out a florist uh, out of business when epidemiologically there's no difference between the size of a florist shop and a and an uh, liquor store. And yes, I know alcoholics need uh, alcohol. I'm I'm frankly not very sympathetic to that argument. Uh, so. Like the reason I don't know if you've gotten this, but when I've made that point, Melissa, they're like, well, uh, alcoholics will go into detox if you don't have liquor. And so that's why the liquor stores are open. Yeah, that's why they're thinking about people, (laughs) Melissa. That's the reason. (laughs) They know if you take the alcohol away, it's going to be impossible to keep people home. (laughs) That's well, alcohol. Less protests. (laughs) It is true. Alcohol sales have been gone up like 70%. It's crazy. Yeah. So the. So the rules are unfairly and unevenly applied, and they didn't work anyways. Let's be real. That 96% number is telling because as you and I, I mean, we're here in Indiana. Those of you who are in New York are probably in a different situation, but around here, everybody's going to the parks. Uh, I don't know what it's like in your town, Melissa, but here, everybody's in the parks. Everybody's downtown walking. Everybody's going to stores. You know, it's not, it, it isn't. If a communicable disease needs community, we certainly have not starved uh, the <laughs> the disease of victims here in Indianapolis, despite all the drama queens. Um, but the the other aspect is that as the government starts to craft these policies to keep people in their homes or to keep businesses shut down, you start to see the petty tyrants around the country pop up. Now, one caveat that I want to mention, and you say if you disagree, is... That sometimes when we do these kind of shows, you take a a single incident and you paint an entire profession or an entire system as a certain way based on a few cherry-picked examples. And we're going to try and not do that, and we're going to talk about some of the most ridiculous, ridiculousness, ridiculous examples of policing through the pandemic while also giving solutions at the end, and we're going to keep a firm eye on making sure that we don't say that listen this one crazy example is how everything works that that's sort of the case with shootings for instance you know the one in georgia is very clear cut the one here in indianapolis is not and every individual case needs to be evaluated individually but by and large you start to see petty tyrants pop up and in terms of the shutdowns indiana and and michigan are two great examples of of government action in a positive way and a non-positive way and uh call me a statist uh, and i'll get your opinion after this but i firmly believe melissa that here in indiana eric holcomb was a little slower to shut down and a lot faster to open than michigan and eric holcomb came out last week he's our governor he's not trying to run for higher office he's not grandstanding he's just kind of like here's here's where we're at here's what we're doing and here's the plan he had a four-stage plan with specific dates and said as we're reopening here are the specific dates tomorrow uh you can get a haircut you know may 11th 
you, you, this is when ha the hairstylist can go back to work. Now, I got a black market haircut uh, two days ago because I couldn't take it anymore. Uh, I needed to get my haircut, and Melissa can attest to the listeners, I paid for a black market haircut, and sometimes <laughs> when you pay for things, I I have a fuckboy haircut. It actually looks pretty good. It's just more severe than I think I'm, <laughs> I'm used to, Melissa. Yeah, I don't think it looks bad. <laughs> yeah, everybody says it looks good, but I'm like, I'm, this is too hip of a haircut for someone as old and stodgy as I am. Um, but May 11th, you can go back, and these certain businesses can open. And so because he gave specifics, was open and transparent with people, and said, here's the plan, everybody in Indiana calmed down, and the protest kind of died down. In Michigan, there she's just fueling the fire by being more prohibitive and more defiant and obstinate. And if you want to, if you wonder why there are armed protesters in the capital of the Michigan government, it's not because it's. I mean, it is personal choice of those particular protesters. It's also because she's being a tyrant. And so, if it, it's sort of a self own, if you didn't want people protesting. Oh wait a minute! Maybe she wants people showing up looking like they're violent nut jobs with nooses, and she, then she can repeat it on the Sunday shows. Maybe that's what she's doing. Uh, so, you know, I think Indiana and Michigan are two great examples, Melissa, of the, you know, the transparent, more lackadaisical. I, I, I mean, I'm not going to say we were Sweden because it wasn't totally open, but here in Indiana, like. What what has really been shut down here in Indiana? I think it's like hairstylists and masseuses and, you know, in, indoor dining and stuff like that. But, you know, it's mainly the government hasn't shut th things down. It's largely been the pandemic in Indiana that have shut things down mm -hmm. versus Michigan, where she's like tying ropes around seeds in Walmart. Yeah, I think it's been pretty chill here. Um I do like that our, our governor did have a very like specific plan. And I think in the states that haven't, because there are so many, it changed the, uh, I guess, the discourse from it was like 15 days to slow the spread to completely eradicate the pandemic before we go back. And right. I think Holcomb, with his plan, it was pretty clear that we only ever wanted to flatten the curve or whatever. Yeah. And I think that a large reason that, I heard Ben Shapiro say this, and he's, I think he's absolutely right on this. You know, people tend on the right, people trust that Trump wants to open things up and isn't going to keep things shut down forever, whereas if Hillary Clinton were president, there'd be probably shooting by now. And so Holcomb's kind of in the, in the same boat where, yeah, there are protests, but I think those protests are what kind of spurred him to kind of open up quicker. And it's been about three weeks since those protests now I don't expect any person to come forward and say I caught COVID-19 at that protest. But, I mean, who wants to be that punching bag, right? right? But we have not seen a massive spike in cases, and I guarantee you the local media has been looking for it. Uh, so mm -hmm. I do think that that is important to note. Um, now, we're not saying that Holcomb was right. I don't want you to get that impression. It's more shades of showing you that the Sweden model – probably would have worked better that yes their their death rate and their their rates are a tick higher than the united states and and other places but it is 
It is not as severe as maybe we thought it might be a month ago when we were looking at how they operated. And so as we're starting to look forward and what we're going to do, we have to start taking a look at where we're at in, in all of this. And I think, you know, Holcomb, by saying, like, uh, it's also funny. Holcomb, did you see the picture of Holcomb, the Indiana governor in Brown County, and he had just done a press conference about, you know, as we go out in public, wear masks, stay six feet apart from each other, just play it safe. And the next day, he <laughs> is on Facebook in a in a tagged photo taking a selfie with two people with their cheeks touching his and no masks on in this restaurant. Uh, I did. <laughs> and he just got roasted, rightfully so, and he apologized. But it just kind of shows you, like, he probably was with the protesters more than they thought he was. But what... <laughs> But public opinion was not, and so he had to to shut things down more than he wanted to, um, probably. Um, but whereas Whitmer is just like, I'm going to take this power for what it is. Um, so it, it, if it just shows you that a more hands-off government, exactly like you said, Melissa, the more government action, the more force, the more prohibition, the more you see the more divisive the public discourse becomes versus here in indiana you've got your i mean usual suspects of which i would include myself criticizing the government shutdown but by and large people are not ready to march in the streets like they are in michigan mm -hmm. no so all right now the other aspect of this is civil liberties and so Melissa has done a great job. We've got great show notes for this, so we'll we'll put that in the uh, we'll put that in the link section or on the website as well. The description, I mean, and you can go and, and grab these links. We're also we've also tweeted those out, uh, and uh, she's got great notes here. Kind of, I mean, when you sent me this document of some of these arrests that have happened during the pandemic and for what, my jaw hit the floor. <laughs> Oh, so the links in the body of the text, those are actually um, before the pandemic. Oh, uh, okay. There's more of like pointing out that while, I mean, there is like a link at the bottom with a with like 40 to 50 different um, tweets with four stories each in those tweets of various tyrannical things that have been going on. But in the body of the text, the point was more of like... Um, it's not just a pandemic problem. You're just mm. like noticing it now. Gotcha. Um, and then they were outrageous stories that happen on a regular basis um, in America. Right. So now I am, here's my view. Let's just show our bias right here at the beginning so people understand where we're coming from. I, I view law, law enforcement is a profession. And there are people that there was a, a lot of talk in the libertarian sphere about vigilantism, which I've never heard anybody use in a positive way. But apparently people think that some versions of vigilantism are are OK, where I view vigilantism as pursuing somebody as, as opposed to self-defense, self-defense, gun ownership. There's absolutely those are rock solid principles that we ought to live by. If somebody comes in your house then you have the right to protect your property and your family going and chasing somebody down because you suspect them of committing a crime is not 
libertarian in the slightest. And there's a little <laughs> bit of, and you and I have talked about this, there's a little bit of drift in the libertarian community towards like just an eagerness to use weapons and violent Violence. violent rhetoric is just very attractive and you got the boogaloo boys on instagram and frankly it's just kind of like this isn't libertarianism is about trying to find peaceful solutions and non-violent okay. solutions to social problems and you know showing up to capitals with armed guns and you know constantly wanting violence <laughs> to take place and low-key supporting two men chasing down this kid in Georgia like that none of that seems libertarian to me nor is it good messaging mm -mm, not at all so yeah I mean it, how, does it concern you that that's kind of the conversation I have not seen people justifying uh the incident in Georgia thankfully I think I might actually lose it if I did <laughs> um but I do think that there's been a drift towards violence. And I think this pandemic is kind of a perfect example of the two, I guess, you know, right now in the libertarian community, most people are like agorism and then other, there's like the boogaloo people or right. whatever, you know, and at the beginning of this, there was the shooting of Duncan Limp and then they essentially put the entire country on house arrest and people started looking towards black and gray markets for solutions, you know, like your haircut mm -hmm. and sending your friends seeds. Whereas the people who are constantly like armed rebellion, they didn't really do anything at all. They just let it kind of happen. I think it shows a lot of the inconsistency in their ideology yeah, and I have to be gracious, graceful uh, towards these because a lot of them are kids. They're like seventeen-year-old mm -hmm. kids who don't know any better, who are being manipulated. They want a sense of belonging. Yes, and they're they're trying to find it, and there are plenty of charlatans and grifters who are willing to mm -hmm. sell them a bill of goods. And I would consider Maj Touré kind of in this camp, somebody who was fairly libertarian, started to come in, talk libertarian principles, and then started to see. A, a a violent solution to any problem. You know, he tweeted out, if you're a victim of domestic violence, tweet me this code word and me and my friends will show up and take care of the problem. Well, mm -hmm. there's several issues with that. You've now created a public statement that can be used against you in a trial if, <laughs> if you follow through. And if you don't follow through, then you are giving false hope to a desperate person. And mm -hmm. I, just, I just find that kind of like grandstanding to be really like gross mm -hmm. yeah so i i don't know i think that but there are a lot of great kids being misled and kind of looking for violent solutions and there's just nobody there to teach them melissa and they're very eager to learn i know like when i ran the meme template account on instagram anytime i recommended a podcast or a book i would get like 10 different people messaging me like oh do you have anything else and it was like oh okay well they actually care. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I eventually deleted the account because the, the violent rhetoric really did get to me and I didn't like providing templates to make, you know, that spread. Um, but I do think they are eager to learn. They just, it memes bring people into this community and that's a great thing, but also sometimes they don't necessarily get the philosophy down. Yeah. And that's why we started sharing a book a day on 
our social media specifically and on Instagram. And we've gotten great response from that, from, from a lot of, you know, we've got 15,000 people on our Instagram and they're, they're very eager to learn because they're younger. And so this violent tendency that I think is within the, the, the younger gen, I would say it's more Gen Z kids. Mm-hmm. We can start to move people away from that because it just makes them more susceptible to, you know, white nationalism and trouble and, and just, you know, Trumpism, <laughs> like becoming a Democrat statism of a different breed, like and so, fighting for somebody else's goals. Yeah, exactly right. You know, so uh, now that being said, I mean, when I look at the Michigan protesters in the state house, they're using and the imagery of force to show the state that they are are in charge, right? So they're, when I see people criticizing those protesters who are bringing weapons into the Capitol, they have absolutely no, it's totally, it's cognitive dissonance. They never look at it and go, the guy in the costume with the badge and the gun is also the person that is using imagery to project force. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't get why, when did you start to disconnect? Um, f- for me, it's, uh, it, it took me a long time because uh, like I said, I'm not anti-police officer because I think there are good individuals in policing. I think it's, a, we're going to talk about systemic problems. Um, but it started with Ferguson for me and kind of you know, not looking at issues of racial injustice or policing issues. And then I read Radley Balco's book on rise of the warrior cop and and saw him speak. And that's when I started to realize policing is about enforcing laws and without the police, then a politician is just a person with a bad opinion, Melissa. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I came into the Liberty movement actually, um, when the murder of Kelly Thomas happened, usually police, that's like everybody's hang up, but that's kind of where I entered. I wanted to see what people on social media were saying about that because I didn't know anything. And I'm just like, surely people, you know, this guy was beaten to death and the recording was awful. And surely people had a lot to say on it. So I followed people and it was just like today, it was liberals and libertarians all discussing it. And, um, that's so I guess just when I took a big social media break, uh, I don't know, it's like something like two years, got into reading books like uh, Ghetto Side and uh, Locking Up Our Own and The New Jim Crow and learn, learning more about how like all the problems, I guess. Yeah. And so what are some of those problems? Like what what persuaded you that policing isn't just Andy Griffith? It's something more aggressive i think it was um maybe it was robert higgs he was talking about how um it's not it's not necessarily the well first it was robert higgs and then when i followed the amber geiger case that really kind of solidified more of my opinions but he had talked about how it's uh more of like the profession that has problems like a systemic problem and 
most of the people are just acting in the spirit of that system and the system allows it yeah to go on and encourages it actually one thing we're starting to see through COVID 19 is that people are starting to wake up to what libertarians have been talking about for their entire history which is that there are fundamental issues with the institution of policing you know law enforcement officers are when we talked about it on the show uh you know law enforcement if i came home and I had a firearm on me, and I noticed that my house had been broken into, I would still call the police because I'd rather have two trained professionals who have entered a hundred of these houses go in and take a look than my inexperienced dumbass with a firearm. You know, the 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 risk assessment there is, while it is risky to call 911, it is better to have professionals. But the issues with there are issues with training, for instance, that we we talked about that firearms training. They get like fifty hours a year, and then they get like four in de-escalation training, and that that causes a set of perverse incentives. And I think that people are starting to see through COVID nineteen the police state in action. You see the helicopter flying over Huntington Beach telling people you are not to be on the beach stay on the beach and there's literally nobody on the beach <laughs> uh or the the somebody set up a scarecrow on a beach and cops went out and tried to bust the you know people people are looking at it going why is a person running on a beach uh, or women on a playground why are they criminals and so you know i think they're starting to wake up and take a look at what's going on, and as we move forward, to remember really how they felt during this time, Melissa. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the let's go back, let's go backwards to some of these examples because some of the things that you, like some of the stories that you shared here are really bizarre and strange. <laughs> I mean, it's such overkill. Uh, let's talk about asset forfeiture. What is civil asset forfeiture and Share this example that you found. Um, basically, if you come in contact with police and you have a large sum of money or really any sort of property, um, you don't have to be guilty. They can seize that property. And that's probably a whole podcast episode in and of itself, digging into all of that and where it goes wrong and the budgets and everything like that. But the first story um that I think is a good highlight of the issue with it is this old man, um, Terrence Pollen. He's 79. Uh, he had like a, his entire life savings in a little Tupperware container. And he asked his daughter, I think, to put it in a bank account, but she was running late for the airplane. So she thought she looked up on a government website. She was allowed to have that much cash with her. Uh, the DEA, however, she was never charged with a crime. Um, saw this as being suspect, having that much cash on her. So they seized it. And then a little bit later, they told her, they informed her, still never charged with a crime ever, anything like that. Um, They informed her that they were going to, uh, what was the wording that they used? Keep it permanent. They were seeking to keep it permanently. Yeah. Just for traveling with the money. That was her only crime. (laughs) right secretly traveling with cash (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and it was it's not even a crime she 
checked she was allowed to do it. It just was suspect. So essentially the police seized her property because sometimes people travel with money for drugs, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, That definitely highlights just how absurd that policy is used. And, And you have no, like, even if you're never charged with a crime, let's say you're just driving, I'm driving from my house to your house and I've got cash and they suspect me of a drug crime and they take me to jail and then I'm let go on bail. They have the legal ability to keep my car, to keep my money, to keep whatever they want in that car. Mm-hmm. And the, the sheriff then makes bank on this stuff. And so, especially in rural areas, sheriffs have a uh, fiduciary duty to themselves because they personally get to keep the money uh, to collect as much of their citizens property as possible and they never have to give it back if you're not charged or let go without you know any charges whatsoever if they seize money cars houses boats like really anything yeah so being arrested for daily activities uh i was just trying to briefly look for the video of the dallas hairstylist uh in in Texas, who who basically told the judge to get effed. <laughs> I wonder if I wonder if I can find it real quick. But you know that Dallas shop owner has kind of become an avatar for a lot of small business owners who are uh, who are feeling like, hey, why am I not? I need to pay my people. My people need to work. Um, so she's kind of caught the attention of a lot of people and her speech. Did you see her speech to the judge? Yes, I did. So I don't know that yes. I'm going to be able to. Oh, okay. I found it. Here we go. This is the Dallas hair salon, Shelly Luther, uh, who opened in violation of the governor's orders. She was sentenced to seven days in jail for contempt of court and fined $7,000. So here's the judge talking to her and then her response to him. You will today cease operation of your salon and not reopen until after further orders of the government permit you to do so. You owe an apology to the elected officials whom you disrespected. This is the way that citizens in the state should behave. This court will consider the payment of a fine in lieu of the incarceration. Judge, I would like to say that I have much respect for this court and laws and that I've never been been in this position before and it's not some place that I want to be. But I have to disagree with you, sir, when, I, when you say that I'm selfish, because feeding my kids is not selfish. I have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids. So, sir, if you think the law is more important than kids getting fed, then please go ahead with your decision. But I am not going to shut the salon. Boom. So, yeah, it gives you goosebumps. And this is what I've been. So all these protesters showing up, protests don't work. Rallies don't work. Marches don't work. Listen, people, the first one is always a genuine outburst of emotion and anger. And it's and it's good people showing up, causing a stir. The second one is when the grifters start showing up to start to meet people. The third one is organized by the grifters pushing their their <laughs> politicians. I've seen it a million times. It doesn't really do anything. What really does work is when you take a stand and you do what this woman did and you get up in their face and you, su- you fight lawsuits. 
She raised a ton of money to fight her lawsuit. It's just like the the bake the cake guy in Colorado, you know, saying this is about free speech. His his legal bills are paid. So if you want to make a difference, quit bitch, <clears throat> bitching on Facebook and open your business. Like that's the thing. People are pussies. They want to bitch on Facebook and tantrum and you know they're great champions of the unemployed and the and the people who are going hungry right now. But nonprofits are losing money. They're not donating to nonprofits. They're just using people as a punchline in a convenient way to win Facebook fights. This woman inspired people by actually standing up to the government, facing fines and prison, and caught the imagination of the nation. Has become an example of civil disobedience. And the governor completely waived her fine and said, nope, we're not going to do this, basically rendering his own stay-at-home orders BS. That is how you get it done. You actually stand up for yourself. If you want to open your business right now, do it, pussy. <laughs> right? Like, don't sit here and wait for the governor to tell you to open. If you're, if you're uh, sitting here angry, open your business. Stand up and fight. That's how you fight is you fight in court. Because court is the peaceful way to fight for your rights. And that is how you handle things. And, I mean, this is a great example, Melissa, of civil disobedience. Absolutely. I think she kind of just embodies the whole American spirit. And I understand that people are afraid right now. And But what's kind of crazy, I heard this... I turned on some news channel. I don't even know what it was called. It was by accident on Sling TV. And they said um, that the average Walmart can have with like, if they're following the social distancing orders, they could have 900 people in it. (laughs) And it's like, how the heck is it safer for me to go to Walmart than it is to go to a salon where they're really freaking clean because of just, you know, all the regulations and stuff. Um, how is it any safer other like what's the difference other than the amount of money that Walmart spent on lobbying? And I get that Walmart does sell essential items, but there's, you could make a case that, you know, a haircut is good for your mental health. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, and she's got kids to feed a job is essential. Every job is essential and trying to mark some as non essential is BS. And uh, it's because they don't have it. They have a decentralized, like hairstylists, for instance, have a decentralized network. They don't have a, a liquor lobby showing up to get themselves exemptions to continue mm-hmm. to work. And the amount of exemptions that were placed and the amount of people working from home, but then still going to places like Walmart, this was not a quarantine. You know, let's all stop being dramatic. 78% of the people, this was a, released yesterday, 70, the, the unemployment numbers you're seeing are reported from two weeks ago. And 78% of the people on unemployment have said they're on furlough, which means that once things open up, they're going to go back to their job. And they're probably already starting to go back, and it will be reported a month from now. And so the reality is most people continue to work, and this was not martial law, and this was not you know, some sort of quarantine. Like It was some sort of weird quasi- useful half measure that probably didn't help anything but how how do you prove that any of this worked and that's the perfect example of government solutions it doesn't make sense it's unevenly enforced and then it's it's applied in an aggressive way against the little guy who can't fight back and then you know it's uh, it's up to us to start to support people but so melissa 
people being arrested for daily activities, that is not new. What are some examples of people being arrested in the past for just daily activities? First, to your earlier point, it is um, important to point out that I think that because normally these stories just fall completely under the radar, but they're going, all of them are going viral by the like corporate media. And I think that there, we'll never know if the lockdowns worked. We will never know if they didn't work. It's the beauty of government, I guess. Um, but publicizing these ridiculous arrests kind of uses all these people as like a scapegoat for the failure of, you know, the ruling class. <laughs> I see your cat in the background there. They're they're fighting for the window right now. There's about to be a cat fight behind me. Um, So now people like in, I don't know, a year when it shows, you know, maybe it didn't work. People are going to be like, well, you saw all the stories in the news. Nobody was doing what they were supposed to. They had all those arrests. Um, I think that's important to remember when you're reading these stories that there's a reason that they're getting so much publicity. Same with the protests when usually they don't. There were mass like May Day protests um, and prison protests going on. And you never saw those in the media. They just focused on the the Trumpers protesting because it had to do with the lockdown specifically. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Right-leaning protests always get covered negatively and have the opposite public opinion effect that Mm -hmm. they want. And it's, it's a waste of time. All you did was just make people think that you're nuts. And it, it, when become a scapegoat. <laughs> yeah. When common sense doesn't look common, people aren't going to follow common sense. Like it, it's liberty is it, it's yeah. I just like protest to me. I will. I will not support protests. Like just know in the future, it doesn't matter what it's for. It's not that I'm <laughs> against their cause. It's just it's a waste of everyone's time. And it usually just makes us all look stupid. Um, so uh the so so your argument is that these petty little things that get covered in the news take the heat off of decision makers yeah okay explain that again a little bit more um well they're gonna just they can point to people are very like if you look at the comments under any of these stories you would expect to be like oh that's ridiculous but instead you get people like these lockdowns are going to work, not work if people don't stay at home and things like specifically like in New York with all of the arrests, um, they can, instead of showing that Cuomo, is that how you say his name? I don't know. Failed. They can just say oh, nobody Cuo- abided the Andrew orders. Cuomo. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 You're right. Yeah. It's the people on the beach with the fake video, yeah. you know, it's, it's, they're talking about Huntington beach and they show, you know, salt you know a beach in uh san diego <laughs> you know it's or, or florida yeah I, I i i understand what you mean and i i think you're you're fairly spot on on that even people who are more like against more carceral ways of handing handling things they're even showing support for some of these arrests um anyway I guess I found a lot of very ridiculous arrests. Some actually surprised me. Like when I was looking up like absurd reasons people were being arrested for, I was like, okay, well I expected um, some bad ones, but some of these were insane. I found two 
you know, to relate it specifically to COVID-19 lockdown arrests, um, I found two women who had been arrested for letting their kids play at the park before this pandemic ever happened, 2014. One of them worked at a McDonald's and her daughter would go to her work and play on a laptop. Well, the laptop broke, so her daughter asked if she could go play at the park that was right nearby. And a woman called the cops, and the woman was arrested. The child was put in uh, foster care. The woman lost her job, um, all because she let her daughter go, her nine-year-old daughter go play at the park, or 11-year-old daughter go play at the park. Um, and then the other one, she sent her son with the cell phone to a park that was nearby. And he, it, she was arrested as well for letting her child go play at the park. Yeah. I mean, so the, the Atlantic article in the notes was really well articulated. And that's because it was Connor Friesendorf, who <laughs> is an amazing writer, very libertarian leaning uh, and he always makes just, he's such a great writer. Um, so, you know, in South Carolina, as you said, she was, she was booked for unlawful conduct towards a child, you know, by letting her stay at the park during the day. And because she, you know, wanted to play on the splash pads and on the swings and couldn't sit at the Walmart, like childcare is so incredibly expensive. And if you are, a, a low-income worker in this day and age, what do you do with a nine-year-old when you've got nothing to do, no family to support you? You know, mm -hmm. and it, Realistically, your kid is probably safe sitting at a McDonald's if they have a phone uh, or, or at a park. So an adult asks the, you know, the kid, and the, where's your mom? And so the authorities declared the girl abandoned and arrested the mother. If you, if you had a nine-year-old kid, would you let them stay at the park all day? Uh, you know, the guy in the Atlantic article, he, you know, some of us probably think that's a little too young, but we've, I mean, how many of us are in the position that she works at McDonald's, they don't get paid a lot if she put her child in childcare, um, it would be like her whole paycheck and to get assistance. We don't know. There's so many disqualifiers for people to get assistance that she might not have been able to get help with childcare. We don't really know. There's a big push that with all of these people and all of these stories, we don't know their backgrounds or anything about them. So to judge her, that's not really my place, but probably not. <laughs> it, right. It's, and that's whose, whose place is it to judge? Uh, you know, that that's called liber like we all everybody's quoting i prefer dangerous liberty to safe freedom <laughs> like that's that's part of it is that uh, you're going to have to just get comfortable with other people's decisions that you mm -hmm. don't agree with and this is a great example of it you may not agree with this person but the consequences are on that person that and in reality i i think we are over paranoid about ch child abduction and 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 stranger danger, stranger danger and don't talk to your kids and you know it's it's you're creating a weird unfriendly class of children that don't know how to talk to strangers that's going to delay them 20 years from now but and statistically harm is usually people close to you that's exactly right so there's probably a lot less danger of this kid sitting in the park than there is putting them into the foster system and letting them be abused because 
this the foster system like by putting her in foster care you're exposing her to way more risk especially since there's a shortage and may end up in a home with several other kids and doesn't have the same care love and attention that the mom has so it's just and then you're taking somebody who already has financial hardships and just compounding that trying to fight this there is, and I'll send it to you to put in the show notes because I don't remember the specifics, but there's this story about how uh, for women to come in contact, just coming in contact with the law, um, the there's a severe like financial setback because of that. They don't even have to be incarcerated. But for this woman, she lost her job or maybe she, I think she lost her job and the daughter was put into foster care. Like the long-term uh, impact of that, it's it could... You know, if the government creates and maintains violence and poverty and things like that, well, this certainly adds to that. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so let's move on to the school district. And this one was <laughs> what? Oh, gosh. When I saw it. Okay. So um, there was a Tanya Tanya McPowell, she was a homeless woman. She lived between a shelter and uh, she could sleep sometimes at this apartment building. She used her babysitter's address to enroll her child in a school. Um, I mean, she's homeless. She doesn't really have an address to use. Um, And they arrested her and charged her for stealing $15,000 because that's the cost of like the education or whatever. Um, they got the babysitter evicted for letting her use the address. Um, and that's just simply for sending her child to a school that was out of her district. <laughs> Aren't we told about education that we need public education? We need to pay for public education because it benefits the whole of the society. And if we don't have public education, then where would we be? And so then the other message is, if you send your kid to the wrong school, we're going to arrest you. So don't send that she would be arrested for not sending her kid to school. And this, um, because of the guy school. highlighted at the bottom that he Usually they send a private investigator to check these things out and then the child gets sent back to their original school that they're supposed to be out. But the state or the city had been going through some budget cuts and they arrested this woman and charged her with the theft to send a message to the city. And it's outrageous. Talk about the person that got arrested for voting. Okay. Um, In Tarrant County, Texas. Tarrant County, Texas. Yeah, a woman was arrested. She submitted a provisional va- ballot um, for her vote, but she had been on supervised release for, was it tax fraud, I think? Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently that is illegal. Uh, and she was arrested for five years. <laughs> arrested and charged and sent to jail for five years. Right. For voting. Uh, and her name is Crystal Mason. <laughs> yeah, so if you don't pay your taxes, that's why we say taxation is theft. Because if you don't pay your taxes, they're going to financially ruin you or put you in jail. And they'll catch you eventually. And so taxes are compulsory. They're not, they're not, uh, uh, they're not voluntary. Uh, the man reading his wife's emails... This one was kind of a wild ride. Um, So there's a a Michigan man, Leon Walker. He was charged for reading his wife's email on a shared computer. Uh, They used a law designed to protect the stealing of trade secrets to do this. 
So it took me a while to what, hash the, out what, the, the family the, drama the, here. The boner trade? What? <laughs> What's that? What was the trade? The boner trade? Like, what are, what are they talking oh, yeah. about? Um, so it took me a while to, like, hash out the family drama here because the woman was married three times. Um, okay, so the second husband was arrested for beating the woman in front of her child and her first husband. Mm. So the woman divorced second husband, got with third husband, who then found out she was having an affair with him on with the second husband, the abuser. Um, because there was a child involved, he went to the first husband and expressed his concerns, printed some emails. Uh, the first husband filed for emergency custody of the child. And the guy ended up getting charged for like hacking or something like that. <laughs> like he's Edward for, Snowden. And it was like a, a shared computer. So it was the criminalizing of should he Love. be looking? Well, yeah. Should he be looking in other people's emails? No. Is it the right thing to do? No. But this is a person who's in probably a distressed emotional state mm -hmm. that you've now criminalized. And it's just, oh, it's so bizarre. And I think in the bottom of that article, it had said like 50% of divorces that end, like there's some sort of snooping that go on or something absurd like that. Wow. So it's like any of these people put themselves at risk for being imprisoned. Yeah. <laughs> Don't it, be crazy. Right. So the one that pissed me off the most was um, for a Michigan story. And this mom, Jody May, uh, took her iPhone 6 from her 15-year-old daughter after the girl got uh, in trouble at school, and she faced a misdemeanor charge of larceny, punishable up to two 93 days in jail. What? <laughs> and I guess, like, in the article, it talked about how uh, the dad had said it was his phone, and she'd taken it away with stealing it. I thought maybe it was just some bratty child who called the cops on her mom, but luckily it turned out that it was the dad who did it, and it ended up that the daughter was the one who owned the phone. Was it like a, an ex, an asshole ex that just hated think, the mom? Yeah, I think so. It had um, to be, yeah. But to think that somebody, I mean, imagine being the officer arresting that woman. Like, you're under arrest for disciplining your 15-year-old child who... I mean, everybody's been 15. We're, like, horrible at that age. Yeah. So we deserve it. Yeah, so there's also a big problem with raids, which Radley Balco talks a lot about in his book, The Military, uh, the Rise of the Warrior Cop. I mean, raids, raids are inevitable because the problem, the tension that the public feels with the police, yes, in part, it is the police's fault, but it's mainly that we're asking the police to do so much more. You're asking the police to enforce, you know, larceny on a child's phone or a mom sending her kid to the wrong school. And so the more administrative, the the rise of the administrative state, the more police officers you have. And then budget constraints mean they have less resources, less training. And so you get more and more violent tactics because they now have to, there's an incentive to start ruling by fear as opposed to the community policing that you see in like an Andy Griffith type situation where everybody knows the cop and their friend. Sorry to lock you in jail, Otis. Now you've got a, the warrior cop. You've got a, a rise of this stuff. And that, 
ultimately leads to raids sometimes on very silly things, Melissa. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I think m- most drug warrants are, or most raids, it's, I think they were meant originally for extreme cases. They started with like a domestic violence situation where there was this massive shootout. And, you know, it's kind of understandable in that situation why they would feel the need for that. But what ended up was it's mostly used for drug enforcement. Um, And oftentimes it happens on the wrong house. Um, that's like one of the stories, actually, maybe two of the stories, one is mixed in with another horrible thing, but all three of these stories are raids somewhat on the wrong house, but specifically how they can go wrong. In the first story, a child was, well, a family had, was living with another family while they moved in, um, essentially like this uncle had moved out of the house. They hadn't updated their information for like four months. Uh, they threw a flashbang grenade. Um, I didn't realize it was called a, I just thought it was called a flashbang. Yeah. Or yeah. grenade is like, like they just threw it into this It's house. a little, it's a literal grenade that blinds you and stuns, it stuns the person. Yeah. No, it's um, it legit. landed in a pack and play. I think that's what it, they did to Adam Kokesh once. I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it landed in the pack and play and it blew the pillow apart. It collapsed the child's lung. A um, pack and play? Uh, yeah. Well, I don't think they aimed for the pack and play. No, but, but a freaking pack and play is for a kid under like two years old. It's the portable little crib. Yeah. And Jeez. It collapsed the child's lung. It burnt him severely, really bad um, everywhere. And the parents, they were detained and the kid, you know, the officers instantly sensed, you know, oh, there's a problem here. They whisked the kid out of there despite the mother's protests, uh, put him in an ambulance, kept the parents detained for two hours. And then the parents were allowed to go to the hospital where they finally learned of their child's, like the horrible consequences of this flashbang grenade. And then, um, they had like a million dollars or something like that in medical bills. And the county has in Georgia has a gratuity law. Not really sure how that works out, but it forbids them from paying those medical bills. So the family gets absolutely no compensation. The department admitted it was their mistake that uh, they didn't do the right work, but sorry, it's not our officer's fault. So nobody ever got punished. They never got any sort of anything from that happening. Mm. And the other story was a 61 year old man. The headlines for this will drive you crazy. If you Google it, you can find the story. Um, it says a man with no known warrants in the wrong house, uh, killed in a raid. Right. (laughs) Which is implying that the police did nothing wrong. Yeah. Well, it's like, just say an innocent man, like no known warrants at right. the wrong house. Like you killed an innocent man. He was 61 years old. Um, obviously, if you're not a troublemaker, like getting your door kicked in in the middle of the night, is going to be scary. You're going to try and defend yourself, which is what this man did. He ended up being killed. Um, they justified it because he might have been an immigrant or that was a very similar story where it was an immigrant killed. Um, and then the last one was the... Uh, I think it's Pecan Street raid with 
Regina Nichols and Dennis Tuttle. The cops, it was a uh, massive um, cover-up. They had lied from beginning to end. Investigators, private investigators say that uh, no shots were fired from Dennis Tuttle or Regina Nichols' weapons. So, like, it implies or leads you to believe that the officers shot themselves to cover up. None of them died. It was like five officers were shot, like nothing life-threatening. Um, but both of the homeowners were killed, and they were perfectly innocent people just wrapped up in a lie. That's terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it. you'd think you'd be more careful if you're executing something like that. Do your due diligence and don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I double check the address on some of this stuff. Um, let's so we talk. Let's talk about police unions because we talk a lot about teachers unions and how. Yeah, at least I talk a lot about it. Teachers unions incentivize. Um, they're a big part of the problem and unions for even FDR criticized public sector unions saying it's the government holding the government with a gun to its head or something along those lines. And uh, the police unions are a big problem in helping keep the system that helps enforce a lot of these problems uh, and, and mistakes like, what what are what are some of the problems that we have with police unions in the United States? So after hearing all those stories, most people are going to have two retorts. The first one, they don't make the laws, they just enforce them. The second one, not all cops. The first one that, you know, police don't make the laws, they just enforce them. It's, the premise is a lie. Um, Bad laws wouldn't be worth the paper they're written on without people to enforce them first off. But also police unions, they do more than represent most American officers. They're deep reflections of the average officer's beliefs, and they fight hard to defeat reforms, create and maintain punitive laws. Um, I have two different things there, and I could send you the links for those for the show notes. But in 2017, more than 1,100 1,800 officers in the nation's largest departments had been fired for misconduct over the previous decade. And thanks to protections offered by union contracts, more than 450 officers got their jobs back. When you hear that number and you hear that it's over a few decades, you have to keep in mind that police shoot like fatal force, not any other method, over a thousand people around a thousand people a year so this number is already low to begin with is that they is that deaths or is that just that's just fatal force shootings so people killed basically yes people killed okay. by guns not tasing beating any of the other methods that have happened um so the number is already freakishly low because of unions um and then some of them, a huge chunk of them, end up getting their jobs back. Uh, in Florida, it's really nice that they have like all these, they're like super open about their public records. It showed that um, when they got the right to collectively bargain, the police, violent incidents jumped by 45%. Hmm. Their endorsements can make or break candidates for local government and office and their opposition can stop criminal justice efforts in their tracks. Like if they supported the end of the war on drugs, it would end tomorrow. Yeah. I think a really good place to point to for that is in New York with their recent bail reform. 
If you like just Google New York bail reform or search it up on Twitter, you can see like the police unions, uh, the prosecutor unions, the prison unions, all of them just going psycho over. Uh, they put an end to cash bail so people don't have to pay bail to get out of jail. Um, they prop up all these like the worst of the worst, like the Willie Horton stories where, yeah, 99 percent of them do fine. They're going to point to this one guy who did horrible to try and end these policies um, they're just this really large organization that can put a lot of pressure on politicians to keep uh, these officers um, it's, employed. It's incentives, yeah. And so this is a really important point. So here locally, the most important endorsement in local government is the FOP endorsement. It, Those it's, places are like that. It, the back the blue mentality means that if you get the FOP endorsement, it basically is going to get you the, the primary win, you know? And so, and it's the primary win, but you, everybody waits with bated breath to see which, which, which mayoral candidate here in Indianapolis will get the FOP endorsement. It has tremendous weight. And so this is a great point because what they're doing is they're picking the candidates. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get reform of a system when the system is, incredibly influential in picking that candidate. And so how do yeah. you deleverage that? You do shows like this that say, hey, the FOP has too much power and they're continuing this bull, bull crap tactic. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's an incredibly good good point. Um, so next time somebody says that police don't make the laws, they just enforce them. First, you have to tell them that's just as bad. <laughs> yeah. um, and then second, you have to tell them it's a lie, like a blatant lie, because they absolutely do inform policy like they have a huge part in making the laws right they treat it as a jobs program right so what about the not all cops stuff because i hear this a lot and i said it at the beginning not all cops are bad <laughs> um uh, that one is very like it's very contentious, obviously. You don't want to throw, you don't want to say, you know, all cops are bastards and get people, they're going to put up their walls and instantly tune you out. There's this guy um, on Facebook and you can actually find his quote if you Google like Jeremy McAllen comedy, I think. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how, yeah, the phrase is uh, a bad, what is it? Like a, a few bad apples spoil the bunch. Right. Um, but on a farm, what happens is if there's a few bad apples, the farmer gets rid of them. They don't defend them, promote them, right. uh, let them retire with a pension. They throw them out to protect the good ones. And if police wanted the respect of the public, they have to show that they care about the product. Right. Until then, it's reasonable to assume that they don't. I think that there should be more of a focus on the institution as a whole. Like the mo each and every officer is just acting in the spirit of the system. You can get an officer that does something bad, throw him in jail. They're just going to tokenize that as an example of why their system works. Right. Um, it's not enough. Um, and it's important to recognize that cops can be good friends, good dads. Uh, they might even want to do it for the right reasons. But typically, they stay silent when they see wrongdoing. And I think you could do probably an entire season of a podcast on uh, the ramifications that uh, – police whistleblowers have felt um, 
hammer down on them, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm, I'm going to take it to an extreme. I'm, I'm going to use an extreme or an absurdity to highlight a mentality. Um, I'm not implying that cops are the communist Chinese or the Gestapo. But if you watch this documentary on Amazon Prime, I believe it was, called uh, One Child Nation about China's no child one child policy, this woman goes back and basically highlights the local officials that enforced the the policy, the doctors that enforced the policy, the millions of abortions a year that took place, the millions, you know, the people, the millions of babies just abandoned every year. And this stopped when Obama was president. Uh, it, it was an incredibly evil system, but it was an institution in the country. It was a systematic evil that was happening in the modern era and probably is still happening because they have a two-child policy now. Uh, and so the, time and time again, you see in that documentary of I was following orders. You hear that with Nazis. If you read Into That Darkness uh, about the head of Treblinka, he was a police officer who then ended up the head of a, a death camp. And, you know, he wanted to write, he wanted to tell his story to get a, some, a Savitsky maybe, uh, because he wanted people to understand how the system, the institution dehumanized his ability to think for himself. He outsourced his thinking to others and when you take away people's agency and they're just a tool of the state, they're just following orders, it, it becomes incredibly easy for them to rationalize whatever evil is being done because they no longer have the guilt on their conscience because they've been told by somebody else to do this and they're just following orders. Now, obviously, we live in a much freer society which with much less violence, but the police who show up to arrest a homeless woman for sending her child to school have outsourced that, even if they may have personal issues with it, they still follow and carry out the orders. They still, other cops who do have an issue may turn a blind eye to it. And anytime you have the state involved and force is used, you have to pay attention to those incentives, those 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 outsourcing, uh, uh, because it can lead to very dark places. And, you know, like I said, I'm not, trying to draw the comparison other than to get people to think about a concept um, because I agree with you. I tend to be the type of person that likes to challenge notions or ideas or narratives or institutions or conversations as opposed to people directly because, you know, and sometimes that can look like subtweeting or it, <laughs> it can seem, it can seem odd because who's saying that give us specifics, give us examples, but I find it to be more effective and more polite just as a person to challenge, you know, I'll read, 10 comments on our social media about something and then post a challenge to that concept because it's just, it's nicer. Like, I just don't think that going after individual cops is fair because a lot of people have a brother who's a cop or they have a sister who's a nurse or they have a daughter that's a teacher. And so, you know, if you challenge the thinking around an institution, an idea or a concept, then it tends to be better messaging um, and the idea that all cops are evil, I don't, I don't agree with, but I do understand where you're coming from. I'm not saying you're implying that I'm saying that I do understand exactly what you're saying in that 
these sorts of institutions can remove agency from the person who is taking action and absolve them of any kind of shame or guilt in their actions. Yeah, um, it is important to highlight that when we called for accountability, that police did take that as a declaration of war. And, you know, this entire culture of police, culture, worship, whatever, police state worship, thin blue line, blue lives matter, um, developed as a reactionary social formation against people just asking not to be murdered. And it is important not to diminish those people. Um, If you like Google police lives or blue lives matter, like, they literally call themselves a counter movement. So it is important not to diminish their role in being the vanguard of state power. But it's also important to remember that um, police are tasked with mental health, poverty, domestic violence, crime, homelessness, like this massive umbrella. And it's like that quote, like, if all you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail yeah. or whatever. That's essentially what policing has become. We just had an incident here in Indianapolis where there was a, a young veteran, young black man driving on Instagram live and was running from the police. He had outstanding warrants in Texas on gun charges. And, and, and as Abdul noted, how the hell do you get a gun charge where you're given a gun at birth in that in that state? Um, <laughs> and so. He was running from the police. He got out and he was tased and apparently had a weapon and then he was shot. And uh, there's some dispute over whether he fired or not or what. I I don't know. Um, But what I do know is that that video kept rolling and you heard the cops walk up and you heard Mm -hmm. a black cop say, homie's going to need a closed casket you know, then starts laughing and start making jokes. And then they start getting their story straight. Well, that was a good tase. I saw the tase. You did a good job. You know, you, you, uh, let me back up. You first hear the cop that killed him losing his mind out of grief immediately and panicking and feeling terrible. And then you hear his buddies show up joking about the death of a person. And there's nothing solemn about it. There's nothing dignified about it. It is, it's, it's inhumane. Like, it, they, you know, I was, I was stopped the last time I was stopped and given a ticket. I reached for my registration. The cop stepped back and pulled his weapon. And that's when I realized to that man, I was not a person. I was not a citizen with rights. I was an attacker that he needed to defend himself from. And it didn't, I was, I was an avatar. I was a criminal in his mind. I was dehumanized. And, you know, this is what, this is what the black community specifically has been saying for pretty much ever in that we're not seen as people we're seen as black. And that's a much different, you you see it in the Georgia shooting. Like this is the one time I've seen a shooting like this where literally everybody agrees. I mean, there, (laughs) there are, there, there are the, the subset of like David Duke supporters who are sticking up for like, literally I mean, they're going to listen. A black guy gets killed. Those there's a certain subset subsect of our population. That's just going to cheer it like, but the, or look to excuse it. Yes. And racism is not going around and, and being that per, it, racism is being that person and like talking about it. And, Oh, that was a good thing that these, these guys are heroes. That's racism. But racism is also looking for an excuse as to why this kid should have been killed or why those guys didn't act inappropriately 
and so often you see on the right these little narratives develop of Tim Pool put out an egregious video trying to explain why these guys were right and this kid was wrong. Ugh. And you just go, all right, well, that that in and of itself is he, he's he's trying to play on white fragility. And mm -hmm. by that, I mean that you can't see a person of color get killed for being a person of color and just go, that's fucked up and that should not happen. If somehow you have to give some reason that, oh, these guys, he was he pursued them. He did this like you can't just admit that racism exists like admitting racism or white privilege or any of these concepts that the black community talks about does not mean that you have to become an AOC lover that is going to vote for big government in two years. It just is admitting that there are problems within the system. There are things about capitalism that I don't like. I don't like consumerism. Uh, you know, it is, it is a byproduct of the capitalist system. You can criticize those things without becoming anti-capitalist. You know, there has to be some level of flexibility. And if your reflex is to look for a reason why these two men were right, that's a problem. And that is totally different than waiting for the facts, right? Because like with this kid in Indianapolis, I waited for the facts. And the facts were like, yeah, the guy was like being foolish. And if you play with the cops, it's going to be foolish. But that doesn't mean that their inhumanity towards this man was any different than the inhumanity shown by the two men in Georgia. They're avatars. These, the criminal in Indianapolis, the black man in Georgia, people dehumanize other people, and that's how tragedies occur, and it's because we allow people. We don't challenge people to think differently about this stuff, you know, but... I do have a challenge to get people to think differently because I'm probably... Uh, more radical when it comes to police shootings. I don't find any of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to remember that justifiable is a legal term, not a moral term. That's quite generous to police and justifiable doesn't mean necessary or unavoidable. And two points to that context shouldn't be required to have empathy for the loss of human life. So when people are like, Oh, we need more information. Like, no, this guy deserves your he deserves to be grieved. He deserves your empathy because he was a human. Fear is not an acceptable acceptable reason for an officer to use his weapon. And petty crime is not, shouldn't be punishable by death. It, and we can right. speak to more to that later with the, you know, my ideas for disarming the police. Um, no, I think even if, even if let's say, and I, I hate this, but I'm going to do it, but it, even if he were in the process of robbing houses in Georgia, it does not give the right for those two men to go onto someone else's property and shoot him. Right. It, it, it doesn't, in, in my mind, like if somebody's burglarizing you and they pose no danger, it doesn't, you shouldn't kill them, you know, like stepping onto your property unwanted. There has to be levels to it. Like there's a right to self-defense, but there's also not a right to murder. And that's what, you know, if you walk onto my property and I don't want you on my property, but you step foot onto my property line, I'm sure some would argue that you have a right to kill someone, but I don't think that that's the case because that's not a healthy, normal society. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about, I mean, are there any other points, by the way, uh, with the not all cop stuff? Because I think that's an important challenge back to it before we move on to just some solutions. 
Yeah, I think that's a good uh, good place to move on. People have enough to digest so okay. far. Don't want to overwhelm them. So how do we kind of move on? How do we start to change things? The system seems so entrenched and it's hopeless. There's nothing we can do, right? No, <laughs> this is one of my favorite things to talk about because people usually talk about the first part, but they forget the second part, like talking about solutions. There are so many out there. Um, and I know libertarians are not going to be happy with this, but um, a big part of this is organizing. You know, there's a big part of revolutionary Whee! politics. <laughs> there's a big part of revolutionary politics that's creating systems of support for your community that work to undermine the state. I have a few of those here. Um, getting to know your neighbors, first of all. And a lot of the issues that we talked about before, like a lot of the arrests and problems, some of these are going to handle it like right away. Like getting to know your neighbors, establish a neighborhood watch. If something's odd about a situation, you could team up and respond to it with members of your community. You take and or establish vet volunteer medic um, courses, first aid, self-defense, conflict resolution courses for all members of all ages in your community. Get trained in mental health first aid is like super important because of, you know, uh, was like 50% of police shootings are people who have some sort of disability or mental health issue. Um, and if it is serious and you don't feel comfortable handling it, uh, you call 911 and ask for an ambulance. Don't ask for a cop. Don't ask for a squad car. Ask for an ambulance due to a medical emergency. Mm. Um, if loud noises, barbecues, kids, you know, selling stuff, a lot of the caring reasons that people call the cops go talk to them and if you build these strong relationships with your community you may be able to take two or three people who are also uh you know facing these similar issues with the noise or whatever's going on um if that doesn't work out just power through it like if a family's having a birthday party that's not like they do that all the time just let them have their party um i, I have you know i so I have great neighbors, by and large, um, and the the neighbors upstairs all the time. I'm like, hey, sorry about that thing. Or when I do this podcast, they, they're like, are you doing a radio show? I'm like, no, no, I'm doing the podcast. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, and sometimes he plays his music a little loud and there's some thumping. I'm in an apartment. You know, I have a grill and sometimes my grill probably stinks and the neighbor one of the neighbors smokes pot and sometimes it smells like a skunk and I hate it. But you know, the neighbor upstairs and I have talked about it. It's like, Hey, you're living close to people. You're just going to have to get used to other, like I'm not living in a tenement house in 1900 where we're living in the same room with each other. We have thick walls and a nice apartment and there's just, like people just need to, it really comes down to control. The people that I'm around, the people that live in my little block here are not controlling people. Mm -hmm. They don't want to control other people. The people who are calling the cops to control other people, they're controlling people. So it's, it's bull crap. And we talked about it earlier where police are tasked with, you know, the mental health, the poverty, the homelessness, everything, basically domestic violence, this huge umbrella. Um, another like really important thing to organize is a, database of police alternatives you know if you if there's a domestic violence situation you and your neighbors can call these people and they could respond to it get the woman to a shelter uh get the man 
wherever he needs to go, um, anything like that. Uh, you just want to reduce uh, the, um, I guess, police coming into your neighborhood. If you have to go to the station to file a police report, do that instead. Um, just kind of keeping them on the outside. Uh, but the biggest takeaway from that is that strong communities make the police obsolete. And that this is super important. I know every libertarian thinks that they could do it on their own. You can't. <laughs> and, you, and you shouldn't because the reality yeah. is this. And so much of because the system is so anti-libertarian in so many different areas, it's like if we had a libertarian economic society, unemployment insurance wouldn't be needed. But at this point, you've been robbed of your inflated currency so much like take your money back. You know what I mean? Like in this case, the system is so biased against vigilantism that if you do take matters into your own hands, anytime you have any kind of police shooting, like Ben Shapiro has an advertiser that it's like the concealed carry. Basically, if you're in a self-defense shooting, this is like an insurance and they help with your legal legal fees. Because if somebody comes in and they're caught in the act of doing something horrible and you shoot and kill them, you're not going to just walk free that day. You know, I mean, I won't bring up George Zimmerman because I don't think that he's a good example of, Self, stand your ground in self-defense but like those laws aren't everywhere it's sort of like you have a system that has a monopolization on the force and if you try to do things on your own you could get yourself in serious legal trouble mm -hmm. and so i think what what people fail to mention that i constantly harp on is that your world is the hundred people you come into contact with and if you just have good relationships with those hundred people in an emotionally healthy way you're not going to get as an, in as much trouble. You're probably going to have more access to resources of any kind, jobs, whatever, if you focus on that. Even some of the arrests we talk about, if you build this community, maybe the mom doesn't have to send her kid to the park, you know, for that many hours. Maybe somebody would be there to help up um, with that. Uh, and I think something that libertarians really need to remember is that police forces arose as a result of social change and they can be eliminated through the same means. Not popular, not easy, but it is the way. Right. Um, moving on from like what we talked about just now, um, diminishing the power of police unions is huge. Communities have to generate not hundreds, not thousands even, but millions of small grassroots political movements that are just as capable as putting pressure on municipal officials who ultimately give their approval to police contracts. Um, individual officers need to be held responsible for their victim settlements via personal liability insurance. Uh, we need to end no-knock warrants and limit the deployment of SWAT. I think this is probably going to be the one that is less popular, uh, but law enforcement should be a requirement for arms carrying, um, or law school should be a requirement for arms carrying law enforcement officers. Um, if not, just fully disarm the police. The protocol would be to take cover and call for armed backup. Some percentages of officers with advanced education and training might have a weapon secured in their vehicle. However, it's unrealistic and harmful to aspire for like an immediate armed police response available at all times everywhere. And it's particularly dangerous um, when 
we let them use fear as an acceptable justification for using a weapon. Use of force should be based on clear, strict, and transparent rules of engagement instead of the officer's very subjective feeling of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on from that, <laughs> you can like, everybody can uh, at small crimes on Twitter if you hate me for that. Um, Is that your Twitter handle? Yeah. Oh, um, you're always changing your, you're one thing this and you're that. I can't yeah. keep up with you. I retired. Um, <laughs> no support. You, you retire, but then you come back. Okay. Anyway. You're like, no I've support. deactivated my Twitter. I'm like, girl, you'll be back in like three weeks. Stop it. <laughs> um, no support for reforms that give new tech or money for police. And this could be a whole episode because it's really important. They end up being very repressive, like body cams. Everybody wanted body cams. Well, something like 92, I think, uh, or more percent of body cam footage actually goes to prosecute uh, people, normal people. Um, And it's like 8% for officers. (laughs) So they just really backfired. Um, We need civilian accountability boards. So when a police shooting happens or an internal affairs investigation happens, we can look to them instead of the very biased uh, prosecutors and judges and police officers that work very closely with the officers that are in trouble. Yeah. Uh, Another very important is data transparency. And I think they keep it super decentralized for a reason, but if you wanted to know daily, how many people are arrested for various things, how many cops do various things. You you don't know. You have to get this. You have to piece it all together. I read some stories. They're like, we sent a request to 500 different police departments and 70 of them responded. And I normally, you know, centralization, not great. But in terms of police statistics, it probably would be helpful uh, to get a better picture of what they're doing. If a department has a high abuse rate, they need to be defunded just completely. Um, And one solution I heard on the Pete Raymond podcast that I actually really liked and hadn't considered is that police should be like fire departments um, instead of like roaming around, you know, patrolling. Just wait until they get called. Uh, That's, you know, no stop and frisk, no just terrorizing small communities. The the problem with that, though, is that it is statistically shown to decrease crime in if like they, if there is a presence, then people are less likely to break into a house or sell drugs or, you know, it's the broken window theory. And I'm sure that you probably are not a fan of that, you know, just stop and frisk and things like that. But a, a presence does decrease crime. And so you have to be prepared if that's a solution to take to take the criticism of crime increasing for removing that policy. But on the other hand, the arrests that result in that sort of policing end up disrupting homes, splitting up families, ruining people's upward mobility because they get thrown in jail. They can't get a job. Uh, And in the end, it creates more issues for these communities. Whereas if you, you know, build up your community to handle those certain issues, it might end up being better. I don't really know. We could probably do a whole podcast on that. No, I, th- no, I don't know that we could. I think you're, you know, that makes that makes sense. 
Um, eliminate militarization programs. Like, stop giving freaking police departments <laughs> tanks to roam on the beach. Yeah. No, the, the plan where they took basically, they had all this leftover equipment from Iraq and Afghanistan and gave it to police officers. And now when you go to the county fair, they've got their they've got their nuts hanging out in your face showing you how, how big and important they are. Like I think like every freaking libertarian on the website was like, just had a stroke because Dana Loesch like posted that video of the tank. And everybody's like, you know, we've been talking about this for years. We've been telling you to have tanks. It took, you know, it took a harming people in white suburban people for you to notice. Like, Yes, you're saying this whole time, like Dana Loesch, like back the blue Dana Loesch is now criticizing the police. Tommy Lauren was like talking about why are we still throwing healthy people in cages? It's like, okay, (laughs) yeah, here's the thing. Like, all right, cool. (laughs) Like, thank you. Thank you for finally getting on board. I'm glad you're here. I know that you're going to be changing your opinions in in (laughs) 10 years, but at least for now, maybe we can make some change and find some common ground. It's like, yeah, just, um, and then the last two very important end civil asset forfeiture and end qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is basically um, you got to commit the crime or the crime has to be, uh, the police have to do something bad and have to know it's unconstitutional uh, to get in trouble. But it's kind of like this catch 22 because it never really happens. Uh, It's very difficult to explain. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, (laughs) A, a cop shoots somebody, and then there's no consequences whatsoever. Fixing that problem is that what you're saying? Yes. Um, if there's like not already precedent holding that an officer's identical or near identical conduct rose to a level of clear unconstitutional rights violation or constitutional rights violation, um, they're going to be protected by qualified immunity. Uh, there is, and I'll share this for you with this link with you. There's like a article that was just shared by Radley Balco where he talked about like all the cops, like how horrible qualified immunity is and like the impact of that. Um, that's a big one actually getting rid of that. So we can hold these cops accountable. Yeah. Just add it to this because then I'm, I'm going to make this a PDF and put this in as the show notes. So oh, nice. I'll clean it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so these have been great suggestions. This has been a great episode. You were nervous in the beginning. You were a little, you're a little scared, weren't you? <laughs> well, you said like that little live button there. I was just like, oh my God, if I mess up, it's like permanent. No, well, I messed up plenty people. I had to stop recording it because I've messed up so many times. I was very, you know, I hate when accidental racism pops up, but the magic of editing is that you can take it out. Um, and so yeah, you did great. It was a great episode. You, I've been trying to get you to podcast for years because as you can see by this document, as you can hear, you, she's one of the smartest people I know and she, you know, hides. She doesn't get out there. She changes her Twitter handle every year. It's like this, this, this brain needs to be on display and I'm so excited that you came and wanted to do this episode because uh, I've been trying to get you to podcast for years, haven't I? Yes, I just get so nervous before every episode. I'm like, I'm going to fail. I'm going to tell people. It's like the severe case of imposter syndrome or something yeah, like that. <laughs> you don't realize that like people are half listening. They barely kind of pay attention. If they hear a fact, they want to go and grab it in the show notes. Like, And they know that we're we're not experts. We're just doing our homework and saving them time. Like, I am, I'm an, like, I consider myself a journalist. And what a journalist does is they 
examine what's happening in life and trying to add try to add facts and context and explain the experience and the and the thinking around things like that's what I do. I'm not an expert in anything. I'm not Tom Woods or uh, you know who's an expert in history or Bob Murphy who's expert in economy. Like I'm not that guy. Like, but I'm trying to give a broad perspective on things and people kind of understand that we're regular people doing doing stuff here and that's why they fact check us so that's that's part of the structure of what we do here and you're so wonkish and so well prepared that there's no way that you can have a bad show if you do a show so (laughs) my notes like everybody's always just like oh my god this is ridiculous (laughs) yes but that's what we have for every episode that's what we love here that's why you're gonna fit so well when you start doing more and more episodes here Um, tying all of this back to the COVID-19. <laughs> you didn't even, I was waiting for a yes, but okay. Go ahead. Tie it all, tie it all back. No, it's okay. Planning to go back to school, you know, all kinds of different things. I know it's, I'm teasing you. But I will try, especially if they're on Saturday mornings. Like that's a pretty easy going time for me. Yeah. When you've got something like this, this, when you said it, I was like, this is gold. People are going to love this. I know I presented it to so many people and you're the only person who wanted to take it. I'm just like, fine. (laughs) That's because most people want, they want, they do their podcast because they want to become significant in their circle. And, and like, it's not that I don't think about trying to become significant in the libertarian world. Like, of course I have ego and of course I have pride, but at the end of the day, it's about the listener. It's about informing people and having them walk away from something that's, you know, tangible. Like, you, you, I'm selling aha moments here, not personal social proof. Yeah, I always try to brand, brand myself as somebody who I will listen to you if we don't agree. And I'm going to try and talk to you like with kindness and respect. So thank you. You don't put up your walls. Like if I go like if somebody is like this pandemic is horrible, but, you know, I'm scared. If I'm like, shut up, stupid bootlicker, they're going to be like, okay well i hate you and never listen to a thing but if i'm like i understand that but here's the thing (laughs) if you legitimize the police state anytime you legitimize the police state every time exactly i have two goals for the listeners (laughs) (laughs) okay all right what are the goals first you have to remember how you feel during this time all that anger towards you know seeing the woman at the park being arrested or the tank roll up on the beach or the drones targeting picnickers. You've got to remember that feeling always. So when you try, you know, I tweeted this the other day, like the Venn diagram of people who are protesting the lockdowns and the people who are like, just follow the law. Every time a police shooting or a police brutality incident happens is a circle. Like it's literally a circle. They're the same people. Um, so just remember how you felt during this time. And read some books. Uh, Radley Balco's uh, Rise of the Warrior Cops a really good one. The New Jim Crow. I can't remember the author's name. Michelle. Um, Michelle. Uh, that's a really good one. One I really like, or actually two that I really like because they more like target your empathy bone. <laughs> um, Ghetto Side by Jill Lavoie and uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Both of those are really good books. They kind of give you like, they put you in this mindset of like what's going on in these black communities. Um, 
the mitigating circumstances of everything, I guess, you know, like their perspective and it challenges, you know, a lot of the, the, you know, people are doing this because they're bad. Like they're a bad person. This is all happening because they're bad and they deserve it kind of frame of thinking. Right. So read those books. Yeah. Radley Balco. And we have in the feed too, if you search R-A-D-L-E-Y, we recorded a speech that he gave at IU and it's, if, if you don't have time to read, then you can listen to that. You know, the book is great, but I know everybody doesn't have that kind of time. Um, so we do in the, we are libertarians feed have a, a speech by Radley Balco, which is a very good starting point. His book's really good because it's not like conspiratorial. It's not harsh. He just, he's like, this is what's happening. Here are, an insane amount of examples. Yeah, he's, um, he's a, a very well-researched person. Yeah, so I totally recommend that. Or any of his articles, really. Just give them a look at. All right. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining me. Anytime that I'm available uh-huh. on Saturday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you're single, Melissa. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> all right thank you so much for joining me i want to sp- thank our patrons specifically our 100 a month patrons reinhold anthony meyer craig DaCosta, ed brehob jason doolittle jeff bennett christy avery and matt durbin you guys right on, are awesome what'd you say right on guys <laughs> yeah you know we have we have great supporters of the show here they all get what's happening we are we are really uh, I'm very proud of everybody, you know, people like Hody. We've got Renzo Martinez joining the network here. Keaton Tucker at Freedom Strips joining the network soon. Uh, so we've got big doings, and it's all supported by those folks, and we greatly, greatly appreciate it. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you again soon.